Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. I'm very happy to have uh, Dr. Glenn Treisman here today. Uh, he's a professor of psychiatry and over at Johns Hopkins, and he has a really interesting job. He actually, among other things, he does, um, he heads the uh, inpatient psychiatry unit over there, which has a special focus on pain, which is a, a really quite an unusual thing. I think he gr- brings a great perspective to the treatment of pain management in uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal injury, which has a lot of neuropathic pain. And so um, I'm really glad to have him here. And we're going ha- to talk about the management of neuropathic pain. So uh, over to you, Dr. Treisman. Please introduce yourself further if you, if, if you need to, or, or otherwise we could just, yeah, talk about the... My, my cat wants to help us here. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, so I'm the director of the chronic pain service, which we've been running at Hopkins for 35 years. And um, we see a variety of different kinds of pain, but a lot of our patients are on benzodiazepines or opiates, which tend to amplify their pain syndromes. And uh, when we've tapered them off of those things, um, some of them have had uh, so much opiate withdrawal before we see, or benzodiazepine withdrawal before we see them, that they have a long-term withdrawal, which you which you asked me about, and which definitely happens, definitely occurs. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one of the one of the problems, at least I have, you know, treating these patients is um, sometimes the, the the pain has, has is is really severe, and I really struggle to find treatments. I've I get descriptions of people telling me it's like you know barbed wire turning underneath their skin when they have really severe neuropathic pain. Sometimes it's just shooting, you know. They'll and you know wake up in the morning and they'll have shooting pains that kind of go down from their head, you know, throughout their body. Sometimes it's just in the legs, and um, it's really challenging. I'm often at odds finding different uh, pharmacotherapies to kind of help with these really unusual neuropathic types of pain. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on, you know, if someone comes uh, to your inpatient unit with these types of problems, how, how do you approach that? Well, um, you know, the Einsteinian saying, things should be as simple as possible, but not simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to give you some oversimplified ideas about chronic pain and what we see. So one kind of chronic pain that we see fairly frequently, involves the injury to neurons. That's what neuropathic pain really is. It it involves an injury to neurons. Normal neurons have a very narrow spectrum in in which energy will activate them, like a pin poke versus cold versus heat. Mm -hmm. And different neurons are fired by different stimuli. As you increase the intensity of the stimuli, you'll get buy-in from neurons where that isn't in their bandwidth. Like if you poke yourself in the eye, you see a flash of light your retinal neurons are firing just from trauma. Um, Damaged neurons don't go quiet. They become more irritable. That is, instead of resting at minus 90, they're resting at minus 60. And um, the voltage-gated channels that open when a neuron fires are leaking all the time. So the nerves are firing kind of randomly, but they also fire inappropriately, and they amplify signals. And the signals are noisy for your brain, so your brain can't discriminate between what's pain and what's noise. So um, 
A good example is uh, diabetic polyneuropathy. People say the pain is burning, hot, cold, icy, stabbing, sharp, dull, achy all at once. Mm -hmm. Um, That we call that dysesthetic pain. It's pain where the actual injury is very hard for your brain to sort out. That's because the neurons are all kind of firing in a noisy way, and they're stimulated when they shouldn't be. So whenever you walk or whenever you put your shoes on or you put your socks on, your neurons fire like crazy. There are a variety of reasons why neurons get injured. In diabetes, they're injured by the, we believe, by the uh, sugar element. But um, in many other cases, we don't know what injures the neurons. One of the things that we know injures neurons know is um, autoimmune disease. And a lot of people will get a virus and they'll get immune activation and they'll get a post-immune neuropathy. And there are models for that. Um, Other times what will happen is um, neurons will be injured by a toxin or neurons will be injured because the person has a sodium channel difficulty and their sodium channels kind of give out or they don't make enough NAD in their neurons. They have mitochondrial disease. All those things can cause chronic pain syndromes because the neurons are are not firing. To take care of those patients, what you have to kind of try to do is improve the signal to noise ratio. So things that will stabilize sodium channels, anticonvulsants, tricyclic antidepressants, um, and sometimes other drugs, calcium channel blockers, are sometimes very helpful for that kind of pain. A central, another, another kind of condition we see are central sensitization syndromes. These are syndromes in which the nervous system has actually been amped up so that it is misrelaying information. Information that comes in as one thing is converted to pain. And that can happen at the dorsal root, in the spine, at the thalamus, in the cortex, or even at the nervous fields themselves. And I call that syndrome central sensitization. And it is also kind of a noise-related problem. But for people with central sensitization, you have to both stimulate the nerves as well as quieting them down. So your brain can sort out what's noise and what's um, and what's normal activity. So physical therapy and rehabilitation is incredibly important for these central sensitization syndromes. Um, then the, the, the third thing I'd like to talk about is um, is pain that's caused by sympathetic activation. We use the word complex regional pain syndrome. We used to say reflex sympathetic dystrophy, and even before that, we said causalgia. But those those um, those syndromes are usually associated with some injury, but not always. Um, and the injury can be very minor, not even enough to leave a bruise. But someone will say, yeah, I bumped my foot. It wasn't any big deal. A couple of days later, I noticed that it was hurting. Now it's spread up my leg and now it's in the other leg. And sometimes they'll get total body pain as the sympathetic nervous system remains overactivated. And with those kinds of disorders, you have to usually um, downregulate sympathetic tone. And so a lot of the noradrenergic reuptake inhibitors like SNRIs and tricyclics are good for those patients. The other problem is that those three syndromes all tend to fire each other up. So if you have peripheral neuropathy, you sometimes will get secondary central sensitization. As you're getting central sensitization, you'll get sympathetic activation and you'll get a sympathetic activation syndrome. So these things, unfortunately, aren't clean. No one comes in and says, well, I shouldn't say no one relatively few people come in with just a nice, clean version of them. Although we do see that. We'll see people who come in with classic sympathetic activation, uh, classic complex regional pain syndrome in a single limb. The limb will be red. The skin will look like orange peel. Um, And those people, you're pretty sure that you're going to end up using a noradrenergic reuptake inhibitor. 
that will usually get them better. So Matt, SNI, and I just, I'm going to, I just want to ask quickly, cause I'm going to think, and I, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about kind of the, the, the patients with the benzo injuries, the neurological ones. And, you know, as I, you know, before we got on the, the call, I was telling, you know, these, these are patients that don't have a neurological problem. They go through an abrupt withdrawal. And then within the space of maybe two months or something like that, some of them, they develop, you know, this electric shock like sensation, which is pretty persistent. A lot of them have ringing in their ears. Yep. Sometimes it's just this kind of feeling of barbed wire under the skin. And then the clinical course for the, for this, as it progresses, it's for a small proportion of patients, they feel like that always, but for other ones, it kind of comes and goes, which is really, really interesting. You know, they'll have periods of two months where the symptoms are fairly mild and it's fine. And then all of a sudden it flares up again. And then it, it kind of follows that course for several years until it recovers. You know, does that kind of clinical picture fit into any of those categories you you were mentioning? Yeah, they yeah. all do. Um, so yeah. stress will activate sympathetic activity. And yeah. so when people are stressed, their pain will often get worse. Um, you see these people with these, their nervous system will recover for a while, but then their immune system will be fired off by something. Um, and there's a relationship between these things and tinnitus. There's a relationship mm-hmm. with migraine headaches. There's clearly a relationship with GI dysfunction. And we don't know how all those things go together, except that I believe that the autonomic nervous system in these people is damaged. Um, so you, you mentioned that they didn't have anything before they got on benzos. So a lot of the times that's the case. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Now, as a practicing clinician, um, you see a patient, how much benzo do they have to be on in your experience? To develop a problem like this, yeah. like this one. Um, I've, I've heard it uh, on, on fairly, you know, moderate doses, you know, just yeah, within a, the normal. What's a, what's a moderate dose? A moderate dose, I would say that's something like 15 of temazepam, maybe one milligram of Ativan twice a day, um, something like that. For how long? Um, most of the patients I see have been on these medications for several years to decades. Exactly. So why did they get on those medicines in the first place? whole variety of reasons. Uh, I've had some people prescribe them for IBS. Other people will prescribe them for insomnia or. Exactly. So they have a pre-existing, they have a Mm pre-existing problem that may be Mm -hmm. autonomic in itself. Interesting. Okay. Leave somebody on a benzo for five years. Yeah. Eventually the patients want to get off of benzos. Even the people who like benzos, you know, will try to get off of them and they'll Mm -hmm. get, they'll have terrible trouble getting off of them because they have a pre-existing problem. Now, can I prove that to you? No, but the patients we see on the pain service, the patients that I see, usually have been on fairly hefty doses for a very long time. And um, and so um, I think that what's happening is that those benzos are masking pathology that you're now seeing revealed as you taper them off. Um, mm-hmm. We have lots of patients who come in with tinnitus who've never been near a benzo. We have lots of people who come in with that kind of sensation of, barbed wire under their skin who've never been near a benzo. We have lots of people who have the electric jolts without mm-hmm. ever, ever been, been near a benzodiazepine. So I don't know whether the benzodiazepines are, as you as you suggest, neuropathic in their, they, they damage the neurons, which I, I would buy because remember, 80% of your brain is GABAergic. There's a lot of GABA in your system. And if you if you flood those neurons with with mm-hmm benzos so that they're getting a thousand times more GABA sensitivity than normal. 
you might expect the neurons to have some permanent injury. Um, that's what I'm. That, that's exactly kind of the hypothesis that that would follow the. Um, you know what 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 you see is this 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 time course where they they go through the severe withdrawal and then you know symptoms that weren't previously there emerge. And is is that a real? Is that like a model where? You can you can actually damage the brain in some ways if you throw it into a hyperglutamatergic state because that that was a yeah well with with GABA yes I mean with with okay. GABA nobody's demonstrated with glutamate yes yeah so there is glutamate excitotoxicity but we don't know about GABA toxicity for well instance, it would be it would be like uh, in the rebound right if you pull out that benzo you know now it's glutamate unopposed I mean this is just right. me speculating could, and that could be uh, causing. Yeah. Right. People, people have tried to look for that some, but again, um, th- there isn't good data for this injury. And the models that I've just given you of these different kinds of injuries, they're all, they're not very well worked out. Um, but so some people think that they're, that all these patients have a sodium channel uh, mutation that is the ultimate underlying vulnerability. Other people think that it's always an abnormal antibody. So there's a wonderful guy, I can't remember, the name of the guy who does work, and he's shown that in a lot of these people, there is a um, an, an uh, immune activation that then secondarily puts makes them vulnerable to to causalgia to uh, complex regional pain syndrome, and that without the antibody they don't get it. I mean, he's done some really nice work doing that. So that we don't know what the underlying pathology is. Having said that, if we taper people off benzos slowly they very seldom get this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we taper everybody relatively slowly off benzodiazepines in the hospital, and we have very little problem. And I've seen people who come in with these terrific um, complaints of, I can't, I got this permanent injury off of benzos, and so I'm back on benzos, and I taper them off and they do okay. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, again, I don't know if there's permanent neuropathic injury or not, but I do know that even with people with diabetic polyneuropathy, I can help them a lot by giving them drugs that stabilize sodium channels. So um, tricyclics and anticonvulsants, alpha-2 agonists are very helpful for some people. Um, so uh, we under we probably underutilize drugs like clonidine and guanfacine in these patients. I always give everybody I'm taking off benzos clonidine during the process because I think it prevents a lot of this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, if they, if quantities to blood pressure destabilizing, I'll use long acting guanfacine in some patients. And we've done all kinds of different things, including giving people dopamine agonists during this process, to try to minimize their symptoms. Um, but I think that ultimately the thing that helps patients the most are the sodium channel drugs with this problem, um, anticonvulsants and tricyclic antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Because SNRIs are often good for pain, people assume that they're the same as tricyclics. And there's a difference between tricyclics and SNRIs. And the tricyclics have, if you want to remember your basic pharmacology mm-hmm. class, membrane-stabilizing process, pro, uh, properties. And that because they're active at sodium channels. And I think of them as sodium channel modulators. That is, they help stabilize the irritability of sodium channels. And mm-hmm. uh, antibiotics do that by a totally different mechanism. But in both cases, you'll see some of these patients get much better. So the things I start out with to treat these long-term benzo withdrawal syndromes are tricyclics mostly. Um, could, could you maybe just um, 
talk about like, you know, what you might consider a starting dose and then kind of an escalation of, you know, this one first and this one next and, and, Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So um, the drug I use the most is nortriptyline. I use mm-hmm. nortriptyline because um, <clears throat> it's the, probably the most well-studied tricyclic antidepressant. It clearly has sodium channel activity. Um, the studies that go back to the 80s and 90s when people were actually studying how nortriptyline worked and show that the drug has to be above a level of 100 nanograms per deciliter and under 150 to have better, the, its best efficacy, both in depression and in electrophysiological models of the drug working. So mm-hmm. they, they reflect each other very well. Uh, blood levels of 40 are not good enough. So everybody puts people on 25 of nortriptyline and thinks they failed the drug. Fail the drug when your blood levels between between 100 and 150 mm-hmm. and has uh, stayed there for a week or two. And, um, and you're not on anything that disrupts the effectiveness of the drug, like a benzo or a narcotic. Mm-hmm. Those things seem to prevent those drugs from working. So I start people on 10 or 25 of nortriptyline, depending on how frail they are, and push them up. Um, so it has a 24-hour half-life, roughly. Um, and so um, I go up every five or six days by 10 or 25, get them up to 50 milligrams, wait a week, see what their blood level is, and push them up to a blood level of around 100 to 125. That's where <laughs> I think the sweet spot of the drug is. And you'll find that a lot of people will get much better with those doses. Um, if people are frail, I go up by 10s. If people are resilient, I go up by 25s. Um, <clears throat> most people need a dose between 75 and 100. Um, <laughs> slow metabolizers will sometimes get therapeutic on 35. Rapid wow. metabolizers sometimes will need as much as 250. So the highest mm-hmm. dose I've given anybody is 250. Um, and the lowest dose I've had somebody get well on is 35. Um, I don't know if there's people who lie outside those, but I've Use an awful lot of nortriptyline. I've never gotten outside of those numbers. But the, when the person who was on 250 of nortriptyline, no one would give him that but me. So I treated that guy for about 15 years, even though he lived in North Carolina, because no one would write that, would write nortriptyline. It, the toxicity is purely related to blood level. So mm-hmm. you get someone up, you know, there's a lot of toxicities of tricyclics you have to worry about. But the one you worry about most is cardiac conduction. Um, if you get someone up to a therapeutic level of nortriptyline and you're worried, you get an EKG. If it's normal, that blood level is always going to give you that EKG unless something else supervenes. And so mm, mm-hmm. check levels every three to six months. Um, once people, once the people are stable, uh, there are people who induce their liver enzymes. They'll get totally well on, let's say 70 milligrams of nortriptyline. They're looking like a rose. And three months later, they're sick again. What's happened is they've induced their liver enzymes. You check their level and it's back down to 40. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's a very common thing with nortriptyline. It happens with protriptyline as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, people can't tolerate nortriptyline because of the anticholinergic side effects. You can try protriptyline, which has less anticholinergic side effects and is a prodrug of nortriptyline. And you can try doxepin, which is another tricyclic that's been very effective for pain and is sometimes uh, better tolerated than nortriptyline. Um, it's a little more alpha blocking. So that if in patients with POTS, it can be a little more problematic, but it's less anticholinergic. So it does cause less constipation and less dry mouth. So kind of mm-hmm. that's the trade-off. Um, um, the doses of doxepin, doxepin is about roughly half as potent as nortriptyline. So usually you're ending up, you're still shooting for the same blood levels, but usually ending up between 150 and 200 of doxepin. Sometimes you can get by with 125. Okay. So you need more drug for, to get the same blood level. Um, some people uh, like amitriptyline. Uh, the blood levels of amitriptyline are similar to those of doxepin. That is, you're still shooting for the same blood level, but you need more more milligrams to get there. 
Um, imipramine rarely, dizipramine sometimes, um, mm-hmm. and uh, there are other drugs in that class. Uh, clomipramine, for instance, that nobody knows about. Trimipramine, I have one patient, the only thing that got them better was trimipramine. Um, trimipramine is a, is a congener of imipramine. Usually mm-hmm. nobody tolerates high-dose trimipramine because of the side effects, but this guy is the only thing that worked for him, and he tolerated it just fine. So okay. again, you're you're trying to you're trying to fix your patient, and because everybody's sodium channels are a little different, and everybody's receptors are a little different, and everybody's genetics are a little different, and everybody's uh, everybody's injuries a little different. A, a lot of times, you're trying to um, create a cocktail that works for that person that will help their sodium channels when you have no idea what you're doing. You're flying kind of blind. That's why it's very nice to have them in the hospital where I can. Mm-hmm make sure I'm not accidentally getting them toxic on things and check their blood levels frequently. But a combination of tricyclic antidepressants, sometimes SNRIs are effective. I think, I assume that those people, it's mostly sympathetic, but I don't know that. Um, And uh, and anticonvulsants. And then when you get people that don't get better enough on those, start reaching for things that are um, neuromodulators that you don't use a lot, but sometimes are helpful. More arcane anti-depressant, uh, anticonvulsants um, that you don't usually use. Um, sometimes, um, sometimes SNRIs <laughs> are helpful. Um, mirtazapine is sometimes very helpful. We don't know how it works in these patients, but we've wow. used it a lot. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it really does help some of these patients with benzo long-term benzo uh, complaints. Um, uh, I mentioned alpha two drugs. Clonidine is my favorite, but I've used. Um, I've used guanfacine quite a bit and others. Um, mm-hmm. then, um, a very interesting observation about clonidine, when you give clonidine for blood pressure, no one is compliant. They're always missing their doses and having rebound hypertension. If you use it for benzos or for narcotics and people will stay on it for that, they're absolutely compliant. So in the HIV clinic where I treat a lot of people who have been previously um, previous opiate users and I put them on clonidine to help them get off opiates, often end up leaving them on clonidine and many of them never relapse and they use clonidine for years and years whereas if you did the same thing with a group of hypertensive patients they wouldn't mm-hmm. take the clonidine reliably because it's a three times a day drug my patients in the hiv clinic are very reliable they get some signal that it's time for their clonidine and they take it interesting okay um where, where, where do drugs like lithium and depakote kind of fit into these uh into pain management yeah, so Depakote is a drug we use a lot. It is mm-hmm. also an anticonvulsant that is a sodium channel stabilizing drug. So Lamictal, Lamotrigine, Depakote, um, Tegretol, and Oxcarbazine, mm-hmm. we use those frequently. We use some of the more arcane anticonvulsants occasionally. Um, and then um, lithium is a very weird drug. Um, it is sometimes very helpful for pain, even in patients who don't have a mood disorder. But it's, 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 I don't use it that much in patients who don't have a clear mood disorder. But it's great for augmentation. And in some patients, I had a patient who was a neurologist with sciatica who I put on lithium and their pain was gone in about a week. Wow. And uh, they'd been sick for years. So sometimes lithium is very helpful in chronic pain, other times not. Um, and usually if somebody has, if somebody's on one of these complex regimens and I add lithium mm-hmm. and they get a lot better, I'll take them off of it to make sure the lithium's really doing something. and. I'm impressed that often their, their symptoms will come back as soon as the lithium goes down. So lithium is helping at least a substantial number of patients I give it to. 
Now, you mentioned with the uh, the older tricyclics as you do the blood monitoring. I mean, when we usually think about lithium, we think about blood monitoring as well. Are you are you shooting for like that 50 to 100 range with lithium or is it just based on, you know, s- symptoms? So with, with lithium, usually the, the supposed therapeutic dose is 0.7 to 1.0, 1.1, someplace in there mm-hmm. for bipolar patients. For mm-hmm. depression augmentation, it probably works at lower doses. In pain... It's all an experiment. So mm-hmm. I go up on the lithium until the person either is better on it or until they get some toxicity on it. And remember, people with dysautonomia already usually have a tremor. And so, mm-hmm. and people coming off benzos will have a tremor. And as soon as you give them lithium, their tremor gets worse. And so you, you're often stuck with not being able to give a high dose of, of lithium. Um, but mm-hmm. um, I give as much lithium as I need. And if I'm stuck with somebody, I'll say, look, we have to go up to 1.0 and just see if it really helps you. And uh, there are patients who you have to give higher doses to. With Depakote, the magic number is between 50 and 100 of, 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 uh, of total Depakote, of total mm-hmm. valproic acid. Um, and there's a, there's a similar range for free free valproic acid, which is a more sensitive assay, but I usually use this, the coarse one. Um, and so you're looking for Integritol blood level of around 10. So there's, if, you, if you're doing this a lot, you get good at knowing where you're where your sweet spot is. Um, Lamotrigine, if you look in the literature, everybody says 200 milligrams. Actually, what you want is a blood level of about four and a half or five. And for some people, that's 200 milligrams. And for some people, it's 400. So I have many Mm -hmm. Lamotrigine failures who come in with, um, let's say, um, uh, uh, polyneuropathy pain in their feet. And I give them Lamotrigine. They're on 200 when they come in. I'll push it up to a blood level and they're, they're better. Mm-hmm. Had patients, the more clinic who had post D drug neuropathy, who got better on lamotrigine at high doses, but you have to get the blood level up. And a lot of people don't check blood levels of lamotrigine because it's pretty safe. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a, blo- a lamotrigine blood level is, and this is not like a send out. This is something you guys get done on site at, at Hopkins. Well, so lamotrigine is a, is a, because of the, because it's an anticonvulsant, all the anticonvulsants you get levels on. Mm-hmm. They're easy to, um, okay. Nortriptyline levels, we run at Hopkins. Doxepin, sometimes they send it out, sometimes they run it. And protriptyline, you can't get protriptyline levels anyplace from, but LabCorp. They're the only people who run protriptyline levels right now. Interesting. So, um, but protriptyline levels are useful in people on protriptyline. Um, but if, you, if you, you can't get the level, you can get by with a nortriptyline level being a guide. It's pretty good. Because hmm. protriptyline is a product for nortriptyline. Okay, I, w- I want to shift now because I know you, you you do more than just uh, pharmacology and you know uh, like med management at the at the pain unit. There's also a big uh, part of it that I believe has to do with the you know non non pharmacological management of pain. Correct. You know that, and so I was wondering if you could give us an overview of the you know the 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 core the core parts of a non pharmacologic uh, management approach to pain. You know sure. what's really important. Um, one of the things that's really important is physical rehabilitation because that will downregulate pain signaling. And so getting people to go to PT every day is important. We have PT as integrated in our program. Without PT, I can't get most of the patients better. They have to get physically activated. It downregulates sympathetic tone. It helps your brain figure out what's pain and what's noise. It's, 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 it's requirement also probably helps antidepressants work. Um, mm-hmm. 
<clears throat> so uh, physical therapies and, and physical rehabilitation, absolutely essential component. Second thing is in most people, when they hurt, they think they're injuring themselves. That is, when you bend over and your back hurts, do you think you're tearing muscles? feels like you're tearing muscles, mm -hmm. but you're not tearing muscles. What you're doing is firing nerves. And so I always check people, make sure I'm not damaging them. But once I know that I'm not, I one of the big elements is understanding educationally that this is nerve noise that you're dealing with, not the same thing as when you get injured. So you have to learn to overcome the nerve noise. And that is very helpful for patients. And so group therapy, psychoeducation, talking to people about their pain, giving them the mechanism of what their particular thing is. I give them a hypothesis about what I think is causing their pain and why they're having so much trouble with it. And in that formulation and reiterating that formulation is a very useful part of treatment. Mm -hmm. The third thing that's essential are a group of um, exercises um, that, fall under the, that fall under the category of uh, kind of um, um, pain management techniques and they include meditation, biofeedback, self-hypnosis, mindfulness, relaxation, structured relaxation, um, and other kinds of and other kinds of uh, disciplines of uh, mental functioning. With that, I believe you're lowering sympathetic tone and you're helping people develop a pattern to decatastrophize the escalation of when they have pain. People wake up and they say, I'm not going to go back to sleep now. And they look at the clock and they say, I'm just going to lie here. I'm not going to go back to sleep. I mean, they, they'll have terrible trouble going back to sleep. If you say, get up, read a book for half an hour, and then get back into bed and you'll be fine. You'll go back to sleep. Um, they, they'll often do just fine because the, the, the insomnia that they've had because they've had an untreated mood disorder has, has produced this catastrophic reaction. And so the fourth kind of pain that I was going to talk about is conditioned pain. So I can train a rat to experience pain for a reward. And all it is is a shifting of the rat's ascertainment of a sensory modality into a painful sensory modality. And people can do that themselves. That is, they can learn to amplify their own pain and they can learn to de-amplify it. Right now you're sitting there, you're not aware of your headphones on your head till I mention it. You're not aware of your mm -hmm. glasses on your face till I mention it. The sensory background is being subtracted by your brain. I don't feel my shoes on my feet. Your brain subtracts out lots of sensory information that is extraneous. If you work at straining it out, if you get good at straining it out, um, it will help your brain reset its sensitivity. But if you have depression, it's very difficult to gate sensation out. Depressed people can't do it. So they'll be annoyed by the fan in the background, or they'll say, I sure bothers me now that I'm like this. Mm -hmm. And all kinds of sensory information that ordinarily would be subtracted out, which is an active process. It's not a passive process. Um, it's not that you have to pay attention to something to feel it. It's that you have to pay attention to get it, to get it s suppressed. And so you've gotten very good at suppressing your sensation of your glasses or your, or your mm -hmm. headphones. But that's an active process. And when you get tired, you'll notice it's more annoying. More is there anything you do to like, is there anything you do to kind of train yourself to, to zone out those sensations? Or is it mainly, you know, working on anxiety and depression because those mood states are more 
you know, associated with like feeling all of this irritation. Yeah, both. Um, yeah. So if you if you do structured relaxation, these these um, ascending relaxation exercises, you can get your body to be quite numb. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I I I learned that when I was very young. I learned how to do these relaxation exercises at a course I took um, in high school. And lying on a mat, I can get my body to feel this warm, numb feeling in about 30 seconds. And it really is numb. You really have to pay attention to try to feel any part of your body because it numbs out. And that's just a practice technique that people learn. And people learn it for all kinds of things. There are people who say, um, it doesn't bother me when I'm stung by a bee. Well, it bothers me when I'm stung by a bee. Mm-hmm. My wife kept bees. And when one bee would sing, she'd feel so sad for it because now it's going to die. And and the bee sting didn't seem to bother her at all. I used to let people draw my blood, medical students draw my blood all the time. It's an 18-gauge needle going into your anticubital fossa. I barely notice it. And um, But other kinds of pain are very distressing, like a bee sting. My wife makes fun of me because I get hysterical yeah. when I get a bee sting. But she says it's not as bad as that needle that you let your medical students use on you. And it's it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's this. So pain really has two components, and a an affective component and a somatosensory mm-hmm. component. And divorced from the somatosensory component, um, the affective component is what we're really is what really bothers us most. So if you give people a low dose of opiate, and they say, "Wow, my pain's a lot better," if you quiz them on it, their pain is actually not any different. You haven't muted the sensation. You've gotten rid of the distress. I, I learned that when I had a kidney stone, and um, yeah. I in, and they gave me two milligrams of IV dilaudid, and they said, "Now, does your kidney still 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 stone still hurt?" Yeah, it still hurt, but I didn't care anymore. I was telling jokes and walking around and drinking well, lots. Of- I want to I want to tell share an anecdote with you, and then you know, uh, you know, ask ask if you've heard similar things from patients. I um on on my YouTube channel actually, I interviewed a a former, you know, Air Force pilot who had, you know, it's a long story. He had PTSD. He ended up getting put on some benzodiazepines and then uh, developed one of these injuries over time, a pretty severe one with a lot of pain. Um, For his PTSD, he uh, ended up going down to Mexico and he did a 14-hour Ibogaine trip for PTSD. And he says that when he came back, the pain was still the same, but it bothered him like 20% to the level that it did before I, because his PTSD had so improved from that experience. He would say things like, you know, I just feel so thankful to be alive. I feel like the world is a much more beautiful place. You know, I feel grateful for the health that I do have. And it was this whole shift in mindset that, I mean, it almost, yeah, I mean, it reduced his pain by by about 80%. Well, it reduced his distress. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. I don't know if it reduced his pain. But we ask yeah. patients to rate their pain on a one to ten scale, and we don't. We in our service, we don't like to do that. We don't like to get get pain numbers. Although I've made them useful, I don't like to do it because um, it's very subjective, and it has more more to do with distress than it has to do with physical sensation. So mm-hmm. patients will say, "Well, my pain's down to a three today," um, and uh, it, it was when it came in, I was a ten, and now it's a three. That's a huge improvement, and they can do lots more now, and the pain doesn't bother them very much. But did I really change the sensation, or did I just change the distress? Well, if you are a good interviewer, you can ask patients that question, and they can tell you 
But my own anecdotal experience with my kidney stone was, holy mackerel. Yeah. You know, I mean, I knew this intellectually, but I, when I had my kidney stone, this, I'm, I'm, this is very upsetting to my wife. We were on the way to the hospital. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and every couple, maybe 30 seconds, I'd go, mm-hmm. and I, it was upsetting, Joyce. And I wanted to mm-hmm. stop doing it. I could not stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Every 30 or 40 seconds, I would just give a groan. And when I got some Dilaudid, I paid attention. I could still feel the pain, but it didn't bother me anymore. And so a lot of what we do with patients treating their pain is to decrease the distress. Now, I also believe that when you decrease distress, you decrease sympathetic tone, and it will change the reporting relationship between damaged neurons in your brain so that the Mm -hmm. sensation will actually be reduced too. So Mm -hmm. um, people will say, yeah, my tinnitus is much milder now. It's, it's yeah. still there, but it's very mild. I almost can't hear it sometimes. And, um, and you first you reduce the distress, but then after a while, the tinnitus gets better. That's a very interesting, very interesting um, sequence. Yeah. I, I mean, it, to- it totally makes sense to me. I mean, when, when, you know, when, you're, when you're stressed, when you're anxious, when you have this high sympathetic tone, everything is more bo- it can be more bothersome and painful. Um, and I wanted to, um, I mean, and specifically for me in my line of work where I deal with uh, pain from drug injuries, that's kind of what I'm doing mostly. So many of the patients there, they're not really interested in trying any more medications. It's almost like a trauma response. They go, you know, I got myself into a bad situation with these medications before. And so modalities like the one you were just explaining, you know, the, you know, the meditation, the mindfulness, things like that, they're much, much more appealing. Um, and so... I might connect with you after this video to 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 get a more comprehensive download on on all of all of those types of things. I think they would be really useful for the this audience. Yeah, they are, and you, you're welcome to come to our service and see the biofeedback setup that we've yeah. got and all other things. I will say that by the time somebody sees me, they're disabled by pain. Yeah, and they're willing to take anything I tell them to take. They don't mm-hmm. want to do it. They say, "I want to manage this without drugs." I say. I can't help you without drugs. You, if you make it to Meyer six, you're not yeah. people. Yeah. You're a person who has a real injury. This is biological. Mm-hmm. It's not psychosomatic. That's the other thing. Most physicians, if they don't have a good cause for your pain, say it's psychosomatic. Yep. They don't like uh, use that word, but they say it's functional. It's this, it's that. They think it's not real. And the pain syndromes our patients have are very real. And as soon as you start to do real careful testing, I can't tell you how many times we've done small fiber biopsies and find small fiber neuropathy in a person. Um, we wrote a paper on people who had uh, unexplained pain, <clears throat> nine cases of people who had vasculitis that had been missed uh, with, with, because of chronic pain. So you have to have a suspicion of what's going on biologically, and then you'll find it if you dismiss it because it doesn't fit your obvious notion of what a person should look like. Um, you know, and people who are symptom amplifiers by their nature, people who are who have very dramatic, mm-hmm. people will dismiss their pain because they're dramatic. <laughs> their pain's dramatic too, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, we find that a lot of these patients have subtle dysautonomias, subtle neuropathies, clear mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. injuries of a variety of sorts. Um, it doesn't mean they can't get better. Because the, the wonderful thing about the human body is it's wonderfully plastic. And um, people can rehabilitate their back and rehabilitate their 
their uh, their nervous system if if they stick with it. Um, but if you have an amplification syndrome going on, you have to do something to interrupt it. And usually, non pharmacological mechanisms are not enough for our patients. Yeah. Um, speaking of the uh, the recovery course, one of the things uh, for, for pain, one of the things that I found really challenging, you know, working with these problems is that. I guess I'm, I'm used to problems resolving in a linear fashion. You know, it's the worst on day one. And then over the next, you know, couple of years, it gets better in a consistent way. That is not what I see at all with these patients. You know, like I, I think I mentioned before, you know, periods where it's severe periods where it's, you know, almost not even there at all. And it's, it's all over the place. And and I, you know, I look for things. I look for contextual stresses. Is there something, you know, that makes sense to me that would cause the pain to amplify now? And I, and I don't find it um, in, in several of the patients. So I wanted to get your, like, is this a normal clinical course of recovery for like neuropathic pain um, that it kind of gets better in these, you know, in, in this nonlinear way? Well, um, yes and no. So people who have a very clear one thing where they have one nice night, they, they bump their arm. They got complex regional pains from their arm. You put them on nortriptyline and they get better. They're going to stay better. Mm-hmm. You're never going to see them again. Another group of people, they had uh, mononucleosis and three weeks later, they developed chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia pain and they're utterly ruined by it. And then over time, they developed gluten enteropathy and had to go off gluten and, um, and they have GI chronic GI distress. And then they develop POTS and they're, they're get orthostasis. They're having a progressive injury to their autonomic nervous system. And those people fit your description. That is, yeah, that, that sounds better. like a lot of my patients. But yeah. I'll get them better and they are totally well for seven months. And then they have a cold and they're devastated. Mm-hmm. They're right back to where they were. Or they, they say, yeah, I flew in an airplane and I, my tennis came back and everything came back. Mm-hmm. And, um, or they'll say, I don't know, I was doing great. And then suddenly the medicine just stopped working. And um, um, now one of the problems I have a lot is that people will be on the medicine, it will be working. They'll taper off of it and they'll be fine for a while. And then some trigger will happen and they'll get sick again. And if they just go back on the medicine, it often works again. But they will... Everybody, I say to patients, I know you're going to stop your medicine. Every patient stops their medicine. I know you're going to do it. When you do it, please tell me you're doing it so that I can monitor you and be on top of how we're doing it so that I can put you back on when you get sick again. Mm-hmm. And they always get sick again. Because, um, if, again, if they come to see me, they don't have one. They don't have these nice one thing problems. They have these. So anything that rocks the boat will cause the amplification loop to start up again. That's interesting because I, I I do hear from my patients that, you know, some of them they'll you know they they stop drinking you know when when people get injured like this they they go clean a lot of the times so they you know gluten free you know eating clean not drinking and then they'll something will happen they'll they'll have a drink or they'll you know they'll do drugs recreational drugs or something like that and then it flares it up and it's they will have an amplification of pain that lasts much further than any kind of pharmacological effect oh, no, of whatever substance right. they introduced. They and there the will loop. be, yeah. They started the loop back up. And these, yeah. these loops are amplification loops. The sympathetic mm-hmm. nervous system activates the immune system. The immune system changes your gut microbiome, 
which activates the immune system, which activates the sympathetic nervous system. And these little arrows, and what, in my career, I've tried very hard to see which direction the arrows go in. Mm-hmm. And uh, before, before we started, I told you about the experiment where we can irritate the colons of rats and give them major depression. If you cut the vagus nerve, they get irritated colon, but they don't get major depression. That is, the problem with the colon is, being, is, is the thing that's causing the depression. The arrow goes that way. But mm-hmm. a lot of times, people with depression will get GI dysmotility dysfunction, and the arrow is going the other way. And so mm-hmm. the problem is most of these arrows go both ways. That is, if you disrupt function in one sphere, the rest of the organism has trouble getting back to homeostasis. And so <clears throat> what you're trying to do is get the amplification loop calmed down, damped down with these drug cocktails. Yeah, with, with, yeah okay. Um, great. Um, another, I mean, another thing I had on my mind was, you know, the story about this guy that did Ibogaine kind of stuck out to me. I mean, is there is this something that, that is gaining any traction within the pain community, the use of these, you know, psychedelics? I mean, they seem to be all over depression and PTSD in the in the psychiatric clinical research. What, what do you see in the on the pain side? Um, we see anecdotal evidence like your ibogaine guy of people who took yeah. uh, so we use ketamine and a lot of people like ketamine. Um, ketamine mm-hmm. sometimes helpful, but it's not usually, but it sometimes is. Um, and uh, um, the if you wanted to know if a drug was good for depression, what study would you do? Oh, I mean, the, the ones that are done would be the placebo-controlled randomized they trial. Haven't done that. They haven't done that with psychedelics. Not in pain. Just, uh, well, not, they not are doing it. They've done a lot think, of depression studies, but they haven't done the one study you should do, which is you take people who have clearly defined, they're not alcoholics, they're not cancer patients, they have run-of-the-mill bread and butter major depression, and you randomize them to, uh, to psychedelic treatment of whatever choice you want or, or standard treatment, and you look at them 12 weeks later. And mm-hmm. that study hasn't been done with psychedelics. And so until we do that study... You know, I, it's not going to be in my armamentarium. Part of the reason is that um, psychedelic drugs look like in some people, they cause permanent changes to the brain. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you can't get back. If, I don't have any drugs that I use where if you, st- you stop them, you can't get back to baseline. But with benzos, you can't. Mm-hmm. People can be anxious even without a withdrawal syndrome. People come off benzos can be anxious for a year. They can have disrupted sleep for a year. Rats will have disrupted sleep for a long time after exposure to chronic benzos. So yeah. it, I, I like drugs where when you stop them, whatever you're doing goes away. I mean, the most frightening thing that I've been hearing about over the last couple of years is, you know, um, it's it's the antidepressants. Now, I don't know if you've seen people on the SSRIs develop the, the same kind of protracted withdrawal injury as the benzos, but there's... That seems to be happening as well. And then there's the, um, gosh, there's there's been the the PSSD, the post-SSRI sexual dysfunction thing that has yeah. now been la- labeled in Europe on and, and Canada and things like that. That's, yeah. that's concerning, yeah. Lose interest in something for two years, it's hard to get it back. And there's no question that SSRIs and SNRIs can suppress your sex drive, and you should be asking people those questions. But... On the other hand, um, there is untreated major depression 
10 to 20% lifetime mortality. Mm-hmm. Sexual dysfunction, much lower. So, yeah. you know, these, these, the, the problem for you and me in, in, in re- the real world, the problem for you and me is this. Out there in the world, if people come in and say they have a little depression, they get a little antidepressant. And people aren't saying you have this biological syndrome of dopamine reward dysfunction and it needs medication versus you're having a bad hair day. And what you see in the, in the, in the trials is by using a checklist to make the diagnosis, l- less and less of the patients respond to the drug and more and more of the patients have a placebo response. If you look at the if you look at the curve of drug versus placebo response in the last fifteen years, it, there's a the placebo response is up to forty percent now in depression trials. What's mm-hmm. that means? You're not treating what you think you're treating in most patients, and that's because people aren't making careful critical diagnoses um, because they think the drugs are relatively harmless. And as you say, they're not relatively harmless. Mm-hmm. No, and I mean the other thing with the antidepressants, it, you know, with the clinical trials, is the the measure is the HAMD or the Madras, which are depression scales. And I think if you if you if you listen to your patients when you're giving them antidepressants, you'll notice that the drug effect is one of mood constriction and and um, therapeutic emotional blunting. And you know, you yeah. can design tools yeah. that can can pick up on those effects. You know, the, right. those therapeutic effects. But that's not how we run the studies. We go, you know, did your depression get better? And it doesn't capture really what the drugs are doing um, for an individual person. That's right. But people tend to think about antidepressants as SSRIs now. And mm-hmm. antidepressants aren't SSRIs. Antidepressants are tricyclics. SSRIs are Johnny-come-lately. And yeah. if you look carefully at tricyclics, they, aren't, they don't suppress emotional range. Mm-hmm. In fact, if anything, they amplify it. So um, I think that SSRIs have benefit in people who tend to be emotionally overreactive to tell oh, yeah. them, but you are, yeah. you are handicapping them some. And what I say to patients is I'd rather you took a medicine and learn to manage your feelings some other way than being blunted. So I don't use a lot of SSRIs in my work because I, I do think that the side effects of SSRIs are underrated. The side effects of other drugs are overrated. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, one of the things that I think troubles me the most about, I guess, I'm going to say kind of maybe healthcare in the US sometimes is it 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 is very uh, can become very production line you know people can come in they can do their PHQ9 they can walk out with an SSRI and just like you mentioned you know you know we're not counseling people on you know hey this is how this drug is going to affect you you know with blunting when you're not really asking them how's your relationship going you know what's your sex life like you know all of these things, because when you when you cause a level of emotional blunting, it's not like, hey, is your depression getting better? It's, you know, how is this kind of playing out in your life and your relationships and different things? It's it's actually a really complicated drug, I think, to monitor, which is often so overlooked. I, yeah. No, I agree with you 100%. So yeah. um, in a follow-up, in my patients, usually my follow-ups are 45 to 55 minutes. And um, the, the Hopkins says, well, you should be able to f- see a follow-up in 20 minutes or 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I can't because I'm not very smart. And I have to ask all these questions about sex and what you're doing and, and, and assess in my own mind if, I, if, I'm, if I'm really helping the person get to where they should be. Um, and you want to make the most of patients. You don't want to make the least of patients. Um, but I do think that you're right about the, the 
problem with reimbursement in the U.S. is that it's very focused on the shortest possible amount of time with the patient and the biggest possible therapeutic response in an algorithmic way. Mm-hmm. The problem in other places is that if you if you fall outside the the most obvious medical problems, you don't get treated at all. And so um, complex comorbidity patients, which is my main group of patients that I see, they don't get treated very well in the other places. I mean, there, there are very few countries in the world where there are AIDS psychiatry specialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. The, it, well, what percentage of patients with HIV have a psychiatric disorder? 68% other than substance abuse. It's 68% have an access one diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And we're not, and we have no specialists in that domain. Well, it's, it, it, it's in the waste can along with a lot of other things that we just, with drug addiction, we just, you know, we don't have the resources, so we're just not going to do it. Well, it costs you more if you don't do it. It's true. And, it, it really does in the long run. And, and, you know, I just look at how, you know, I have colleagues that do insurance-based private practices. It's, it, you get paid a lot more for four 15-minute visits than you would get for a 15-minute plus a 45-minute psychotherapy add-on, which is kind of how you would bill for one of your sessions, I imagine, something like that. I mean, it's just well, the incentives I, are messed up. Yeah, I, I don't – the good thing is I don't pay attention to the money. I, yeah. This is a problem for the administrators but not for me. Yeah. Um, I, I give good care. And I think that mm-hmm. if you're at Johns Hopkins, you should give premium care. And their problem is to get paid for premium care, not my problem to give cheaper care. Yeah, um, Cheaper care is not as good. And the other thing that everybody has this idea is that all doctors are equal. And in fact, they're equal to nurse practitioners. And in fact, they're equal to whoever there is with primary care doctors. So a specialist who spent 30 years like me studying uh, pain and the interaction between medical problems and psychiatric problems and depression and bipolar disorder and really has really studied it and thought about it a lot, like you're thinking about things a lot. Um, somebody like that is no different to Johns Hopkins than a person just came out of residency. Yep. Generate X visits per hour and they can generate X RVUs. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the fact that you can get expensive people better or hard people better doesn't help Hopkins very much. It helps the world, but it doesn't help Hopkins. But Hopkins has been very tolerant of my my career choices, um, mm-hmm. probably probably not necessarily eagerly, but uh, but they have. I couldn't do any of the things I do at a n- normal hospital. They wouldn't let you. My length of stay is too long. My pharmacy bills are too high. I ordered too many tests. I keep patients too long. I spend too much time with my patients, all these things. But I get miracles. I get people out of, you, you know about the pain service. I and mean, we get people out of wheelchairs. We get people who haven't walked in five years walking again. We get people digesting food again when they were on TPN. Mm-hmm. We do that all the time. Um, and not everybody, but the vast majority of patients have huge benefit. And the reason they get benefit is because we take our time and we think about it. How much time does it take someone off to get someone off six milligrams of clonopin? Well, if you want to do it responsibly, it takes several weeks mm-hmm. and maybe maybe longer. And if you don't, yeah. mm-hmm. if you don't do that, then they're going to have one of these horrible syndromes. It's got, I mean, it's got to be flexible. I mean, you, you, you go at a pace. If it's not working, then you have to slow it way down. And uh, right. yeah. Um, onto the, onto the, the, the pain, what do people need to know if they want to come to the pain clinic, to the, to the inpatient pain unit, you know, how do they, how would they go about that? Um, they have to 
they have to get their primary doctor to refer them in. There's a website for our pain service. Um, if, if you want, I'll give it to you. But um, they go on the website and they read all the stuff and they, they tell the, the admissions coordinator they want to come and they get their doctor to refer them in. And then they come and they probably have to have a fight with their insurance company. But most people are, can, can, can win that fight if they go at mm-hmm. it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we're happy to have them. But remember, if they come into the pain service, they have to go back to somebody. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't have the resources to follow everybody we treat. So we'll get your pain better, but you have to have somebody who's committed to the kind of psychiatry you and I are talking about, rather than, or, or medicine, kind of, you know, rather than the 12-minute, um, mm-hmm. take your pills this month. Here's your prescription. The other thing is if you're pressured to see patients and have good outcomes, nothing spells good outcomes in short visits like benzos and narcotics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, that's where this problem came from, essentially. Right. The problem and, came from one place and one place alone, patient satisfaction. There's a study that shows that the more satisfied patients are, this is a 50,000-person study from Archives of Internal Medicine. I'll send you the reference if you want. Yeah. More satisfied, the more likely you are to die. Yeah. Patient satisfaction correlates with increased mortality. Because if you didn't go to medical school and you're running your case, you'll be more satisfied, but you won't do as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I told the doctor what he wanted. He gave it to me. I'm very satisfied. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. No, I mean, all of these problems, they, they, stem, they stem from that. And I actually read an article just the other day that the NHS over in England you know, they've, they've expanded their kind of withdrawal clinics, not not to just opiates and benzodiazepines, but also antidepressants because they're noticing that the short visits, you know, people are coming in, they're upset and they're getting put on, on these antidepressants. And they're having a really hard time coming off them. And there's so little space for the kind of, um, you know, psychotherapy and the kind of exploration that you might normally take with someone who has a minor anxiety or depressive disorder or maybe even the patients to wait. You know, those things aren't happening. And now they're just noticing that we have a whole bunch of people on antidepressants that uh, are struggling to come off them. Yeah. Probably, this is, this, yeah. Probably at least half of them don't have the condition the drugs were designed for, which is no. major depression. And mm-hmm. in its classic form, it's very clearly unbelievably debilitating. But if you're having if you're having difficulty with being satisfied with your life, that isn't major depression. Mm-hmm. You have to really, you have to really, really look at people critically and try to figure out what's going on with them. And people don't do that. They really just people come in, they run their little algorithm checklist, and bang. Yeah, I mean, one one of the satisfying things I've found in my career is, you know, as I've as I've kind of gone through residency and places that have been a little bit more, um, I guess I'll call them production line and things like that. I feel so competent now in counseling people when they're upset to, you know, and providing the type of reassurance, you know, when they have pain, when they're having psychological problems to wait and see how things go and really um, being able to spell out the advantage of that approach. You know, it's been, it, it, it's been interesting uh, to, to kind of grow in that way during, during my uh, career. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's mm-hmm. something I was very fortunate that I had, really good mentorship in the early parts of my career about being a critical thinker from people who were very critical of our field and were prepared to, uh, were prepared to um, say the emperor is naked. 
Um, it, it's not a very rewarding thing to say the emperor's naked, by the way. It doesn't pay well. And no. the emperor sometimes gets really mad at you when you point out that he's naked in front of everybody. They, they don't say in that story where the little kid said, look, the emperor's naked. They don't tell you what happened to the kid. But it's not good. You know, it's yeah. Not, I don't remember that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't mention it, that he yeah. was spent the rest of his life upside down in a dungeon. You yeah. know, and the, But... Um, but I was around people who were courageous enough to say, this is a bad direction. We have to be more critical in our thinking about what's going on with patients and um, taught me to be a really good psychotherapist as well as a good pharmacotherapist. And diagnosis is key. If you don't know what you're treating, you have to hang in there and keep digging away at it and digging away at it and digging away at it. Now, you know, the, <clears throat> I have this reputation on Meyer 6 for being the guru. And mm -hmm. I'm not really any better than anybody else. I'm more persistent. If I don't get somebody better, I keep trying. And then they get better. And everybody says, ooh, trees got that better. No one it's not true. They could have just tried longer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I try to teach that to, the, to my colleagues who are, who are much, on Meyer 6, are all like me. They're all a giant pain in the butt of the institution because they keep people too long. But by the time people come to Meyer 6, it's sort of their last refuge. We have to get them better. Yeah. Okay. I think I've taken more of your time than I than I asked you for. But, uh, but, you, but you're a great yeah. guy and you appreciate yeah. it. You're welcome yeah. to it. So I think it's it's probably a good time uh, probably a good time to wrap. I, I want to say thank you so much for your time and we you know I, I really appreciate you sharing your. Um, your expertise in treating in treating these conditions. I think it's really useful. Well, I want to invite you to Meyer Six anytime you want to come. You know, I I'm I uh, we have a we have a lot of we have a lot of stuff to show you and um and you're out there trying to make it go. I want to help. Well I th I think I'll reach out to you and um Maybe uh, I, I don't know if there's someone on the unit that would want to talk uh, more comprehensively, you know, specifically about the non-pharmacologic approaches, you know, the different types of mindfulness, because I know there's so much nuance in that area where you don't want to do any type of it. But if, if you had anyone that you could recommend who you think is really the go-to person, whether it's at Maya 6 or elsewhere in your professional network for really understanding the psychological approaches to pain management, that person would be, yeah. Yes. Um, our occupational therapist, Tess, would be a good person to talk to. My nurse mm -hmm. practitioner uh, would be a good person to talk to. And Will Keisha, who's our, uh, who's our nurse who runs the services and our biofeedback expert. They're, they're all very good at this. I mean, they, they really work at it. Great. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to reach out to you offline and uh, you know, ask you for an introduction. But, uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop the recording now. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittduringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.